0: Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Hi everyone, we've got uh, Laura Parker here now uh, as well, who's going to jump into the. Hi Laura, who's going to jump into this uh, discussion on on mollusks? This is to all of you. If there was one thing that the world had to know about mollusks, uh, what would it be, and why? Um, I guess I'll go first. I think, from
1: my point of view, the most important thing for everyone to know is, I think, their ecological importance. Um, Molluscs, so they have they provide so much. of a benefit to the ecosystem but I think a lot of the time people don't understand that and because of that they're not considered to be so important to protect. So I think for me that's that would be the most important thing for people to know.
2: Yeah and I and sort of might just pop in there too um, what, what many of you may not know then some of the photos that you if you look at some of the bivalve mollusk section is m- many of you will view mollusks and a mollusk reef or sort of, or an oyster reef is as, as a clump of Clump of oysters on rocks. Now, that that's a historical problem, in that actually oyster reefs in our so oysters used to form really far, large reefs in our estuaries. So they're akin to the coral reefs of of tropical systems, but they were they were fished out and removed for lime for building materials, you know, sort of 100, 100, 150 years ago. So. That that habitat's actually been lost from ecological memory. So, so there's only very few people that, that, that know that, that oysters used to form very, very large reefs in the middle of sandy estuaries. And these, and these, these kind of oyster bombies were really important in filtering out and keeping these estuaries clean. Um, so, there's a big movement globally in a, and in Australia to, to start trying to bring back these oyster reefs. And there are some natural oyster reefs left um, around in Tower and some of the other estuaries in New South Wales. So, there's quite a lot of work, and, and Laura herself is, is doing some work with trying to do some oyster, oyster restoration. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of work around how, how do the remnant reefs work? What do they do? What, what services do they provide? Um, and they bringing those back is going to be key to sort of you know enhancing the resilience of our estuarine ecosystems.
0: Paul, did those um, or do those natural reefs have a high biodiversity associated with them?
2: Yeah, lots of lots of invertebrates, lots of crabs, lots of fish. So they're they're a typical habitat forming or or foundation species that you know you you put them out there and they they provide a lot of services as well as promoting really high biodiversity.
0: Um, How long do you think it takes from starting to restore those more natural oyster reefs through to having uh, a reef that's functioning like the ones of the past used to? How long do you think that process, or do we know how long that process could take?
2: So we've only just started that process. So some of the, the bigger ones that have been put out in South Australia and Port Phillip Bay are probably only five or six years old. You know, they're starting to get large covers of oysters on them, but, but probably, it's probably a 10-, 20-year process to get them up to ma- really large, mature reefs, you know, that have algae all over them, that have massive fish communities. But they, they're doing it pretty quickly. You know, there if there's enough larvae out there and enough recruits, and there seem to be, so there's there are there's, there's bound to be sort of large subtitle populations of these things somewhere that are providing, you know, you know, new recruits into these new areas that are being produced. We just don't, we just don't know where they really are.
0: And will those those beds, as they start to come back into the estuaries, provide coastal protection?
2: Yeah, so it's one of the um, one of the benefits of bringing back these natural habitat-forming species because they're, they're, kind of a in a way a cost-effective um, approach to managing storm storms and, and with climate change and and predicted storm frequencies and storm intensities, then then they're a really good way to, to manage a whole range of ecosystem services such as storm buffering, providing biodiversity, more fish for recreational fishes. So there's a whole range of socio-economic benefits to bring these things back into our estuaries.
0: Nice. Is there a way people can get involved and or students can get involved and volunteer and and because it's so accessible here in New South Wales.
2: Yeah so once we get once we get back in, into uni um if anybody's interested in, in that we Or restoration space they can just just contact me and my details are on the on on my lectures um we've got a range of different projects that are out in a whole range of different estuaries so if people want to get involved that that, that that's from taxonomic work in the lab to doing field experiments and getting out in the boats and you know getting your hands dirty in the estuaries so there's lots lots of things people can do to get involved with.
0: We've got a quick question here before we go over to Thomas. Um, I I guess this is to everyone. Are there any deep-sea foundational or foundation species that involve mollusks? Uh, Yes, there are. There are um,
1: deep-sea mussels. Um, They form um, habitat for organisms around hydrothermal vents as well as cold seeps and deep in the ocean. Um, You know, some of them are as far as, you know, I think... Two and a half kilometres deep, so they're, you know, in the area where there's no sunlight. Um, they're actually really unique organisms because they don't use photosynthesis for their energy um, like other organisms. Um, they don't use sorry photosynthesis as the, the foundational um, energy source, so I guess. They have a symboyant relationship with bacteria. That bacteria breaks down the chemicals that are surrounding those vents or seeps. Um, And that's what's then used as their uh, food source. So, um, yeah, they're really unique organisms and and they actually form very complex habitats down there in an environment that's so extreme you wouldn't think anything could live there. Nice, great
0: question. Um, Thomas, anything that the world has to know that you think they have to know about mollusks from your your perspective?
3: Uh, I think I'll I'll probably cheat and say two things. Uh, One is the astonishing diversity. So I don't think... A lot of people realise exactly how many different species of shelled mollusks there actually are. Uh, I think it's something like 100,000 globally and certainly even just in Australia, it's thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands. If if you were to go down to somewhere like uh, Long Reef Headland and spend an hour sifting through a five-square-metre patch of uh, shells on the shore... can find anywhere between 200 and 300 species in just that one tiny area Um, and so it's it's really astonishing the diversity not only in terms of just how many species there are but every imaginable shell shape color size pattern you name it it's out there so it's it's one of those areas I guess if you're into natural history and collecting where it's it's almost limitless you could probably spend your whole lifetime out there collecting shells and you'll you still never see all of them, which uh, I, I very much enjoy. You know, I can go down to a beach. I've been to a hundred times before and and still find new seashells I've never seen every time. So I think that's a really cool thing. And the other thing is that a lot of seashells, a lot of mollusks are actually really active, which is what I'm, I think another thing that people don't realize. So they, A lot of people do associate mollusks with things like the oyster reefs uh, or limpets just sitting on rocks and kind of uh, not doing much. But there are a lot of groups that are actually quite active and are really active predators as well, I think, which is really cool. So you've got things like cone snails, uh, which use little venomous harpoons to spear fish and other little invertebrates. But you've also got this really cool group, which is my favourite group, which is the moon snails. So they're in the, a family called Naticidae, And you find them often uh, on open ocean beaches uh, or in kind of uh, semi-estuarine environments on mudflats. And they basically, they'll cruise around on the surface when there's just a very thin layer of water and they're hunting other mollusks. Uh, And they leave these really characteristic trails. Often you'll see the tide will go out and the sand will dry up and there's all these little crisscrossing trails throughout the sand. And those are often caused by these predatory moon snails that are going across the sand and hunting. And they'll find some other kind of mollusk and they'll kind of envelop it with their mantle uh, and then inject, uh, uh, pierce them with their radula, which is like the, the modified tongue in a sense, and then uh, liquefy them and then and then suck them up, basically. So I think they're a, a very cool group of mollusks.
2: Can I, can I ask a question? What mollusk scares you the most? <laughs> Not of Thomas, of everybody.
0: I have to admit, if any of these were really big.
2: <laughs> I'm just working on them. They're amazing.
0: Can you explain them for everyone, Paul?
2: Oh, if I could be, if, I, if, I'm, a, if I'm allowed to be crass, I can. So going ducks are a very large uh, informal bivalve. So they have a typical planktonic stage. They have little larvae that float around in the water column for two to three weeks. Those those larvae settle out onto the sediment surface, and then they start to dig down. And in that stage, they look like miniature adults. And as they dig down, they become longer and they start to widen out, so they get down to about uh, get down to about a metre in depth, which means they have a very long siphon, and that siphon's so large that they can't pull it back into their shell. So if you pull it out and it's and, it's, and, the, and the siphon's fully retracted, um, it looks like a donkey's knob that's been stuck on top of a very large bivalve shell, um, and you actually that the siphon's actually quite tasty to eat, and there's there's an American species. Canopya generosa, I think it's called, that gets up to three kilograms, you know, weight. So that's a very heavy bivalve. And you you chop you chop the siphon off and you steam it, and the, and the the epithelium, which is the outside layer, comes off, and you're just left with a kind of squid-like meat underneath, and you and you just slice it up, and you have it with sushi or something, and it's very tastes like scallop. So it's not a seafoody taste; it's more more of a mild mild seafood taste, yeah.
0: It, it's definitely a benefit when you can eat your study organisms <laughs> i uh did my master's on prawns and i still can't eat them because <laughs> i lived off that
2: we're <laughs> afraid of nigerians and mollusks well, there's a couple of you know, there's a couple of really dangerous mollusks i mean there's there's cone shells um which with climate change may may end up coming down the coast a bit further into new south wales um but, but you know so also the octopus remember that the um the the cephalopods are mollusks very very derived and and intelligent mollusks um so we have, we do have resident blue blue ring octopus um and, and they are everywhere so um they're, they're kind of like sharks they're they're there but you don't see them so we, we quite often quite often we'll do, be doing rock pool stuff and you know you're sort of working through a rock pool and all of a sudden you've pushed a, an octopus into a corner and it, you know the blue ring start flashing so oh okay i need to need to stop now um what's
0: what's your favorite mollusk paul i know thomas mentioned a favorite but is a blue ring octopus your favorite
2: my favorite mollusk no gooey ducks are my favorite oh
0: they um, are <laughs> <laughs> oh that's nice any
2: any mollusk that lives up it lives up to 100 years old and you know it looks like that is yeah you know you um, start Play like anything, you study for it long enough
0: and you just begin. you become attached to it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's a couple of blue ring octopus stories popping up in the chat. Um, Someone certainly had a similar story with a blue ring, grabbed a patch of seagrass that crawled across my arm. And yeah, a couple of comments about seeing videos of tourists playing with blue ring octopus. I hate them watching those videos.
2: There's <laughs> that one story, is that the story of one person that survived a blurring octopus um, bite. And the, I think the story goes that they basically, he died or they died many, many times, but they managed to revive the, the person enough that the, that the liver had been able to detoxify the toxins that, yeah. that they eventually recovered.
0: Laura, just quickly, a favourite mollusk while we're still talking about favourites? Um, well, I obviously
1: have a soft spot for oysters. <laughs> Um, yeah I love them despite years of working on them uh, um, <laughs> but other than oysters uh, I think I love cuttlefish I love cuttlefish um, octopus I just think they're amazing they're so intelligent um, the fact that they can change color um, yeah I just think that they're quite incredible organisms yeah, yeah. Um,
0: um A question that's in the chat. with microplastics being such a prominent marine problem and mealworms supposedly having a plastic breaking enzyme, what applications do you think that enzyme or any potential plastic breaking enzymes might have on the aquatic world? Uh, we'll be able to introduce that. Oh, will we be able to introduce that gene into um, oceanic creatures and have them filter the oceans? Wow, cool. <laughs>
2: That's a scale problem, right? I mean, you could probably yeah. do it at, at smaller scales, but, but I mean plastics is a massive global problem. Um and there's probably some some ethical issues around introducing those genes everywhere. I think we'd have to get to some sort of massive ecosystem collapse before we allowed that to happen in some way. But there's probably some some local environment, local reasons it could be done.
0: Um, how how much of a problem are plastics for filter feeding things like oysters and that in the natural environment? Do, do you guys have an answer to that one? Are they accumulating plastics? In the natural environment, I'm not
1: too sure at the moment. I know that there's studies that have been done on them in the laboratory and they do accumulate them. Mm. Um, I think there's not a great deal. Um, I do know of study on oysters that looked at adult oysters accumulating them during their conditioning process affected them and they found a lot of negative impacts on their physiology. Um, and But I think to my knowledge, I know in Australia there is perhaps one study that's come out to show accumulation in the environment, but I think levels that, that they're using in the laboratory are much higher than what,
2: yeah. what they're but seeing
1: I, in the environment.
2: So, bivalve, so bivalves have a really good filtering mechanism on their gills, so they 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 can filter particles at, at two or three different spots. So you, you know, so bivalves aren't aren't obligate feeders. It's not whatever comes in they have to feed on. They're actually really good at filtering out different things. So I imagine that they're really good at filtering out these these types of these types of plastic particles and saying, no, I don't want this. I'm gonna I'm just gonna expel it as pseudo fecal material. But in a lab situation where you give it lots, you can clog the gills and you can do a whole lot of other things to them. So it would be really interesting to follow up because most people are focused on fish and and other other higher organisms in terms of problems with plastics, aren't they, I think.
0: Nice. Um, There's a question here. Were beaks the best mouth part for the octopus to evolve with? If not, what would be a better mouth part for octopus? (laughs) If you could re-engineer octopus, would you change their mouth part? Anyone want to join? <laughs> take that one?
2: I think it's evolved for a reason, so it's probably got the best mouth part that it that it requires for for how it feeds and and what it does. Right? <laughs> so what 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 would be the strangest mouth part we could give it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, rebuilding the mollusks. <laughs> yeah. Alex has written. Ha- um, have to try being a mollusk for a day. Yeah, try it out and see how it goes. <laughs> you never know; they could be very frustrated.
2: I had a, um, some undergraduate students a few years ago do little, do little, um, do little projects on the rocky shore, and a couple of students did. They wanted to know whether um, octopus boldness related to their intelligence. So what? That, so boldness is just how how quickly or or, or not quickly. Organisms react to something, like I guess, in a way it's a, a behaviour thing. So what they did is they took, um, they went up to a whole range of rock pools around Sydney, and then when they when they saw an octopus in, the, in a in a in a rock pool, they went up to that rock pool and they put their hand near the octopus and they timed how long it took the octopus to get curious and come out and touch the hand, and they used that as a as a measure of boldness. So if you put your hand in some octopus, it you know, it would immediately come out and touch you and and see what you were others would be quite reticent and take a few minutes to do it so then they what they did is they they put a fish in a jar and they put holes in the jar and they would use that as a as a a kind of test for how quickly they could solve the problem and they would put that jar after after they did the touch test they would put the jar in the um in the pool and they would once the once the octopus took the jar they timed how long it took it to open up unscrew the jar and get the fish out. And there, and there was a really, really strong correlation between fast octopus that touched you quickly and how quickly they opened up, up the jars. We were, all, we were always really keen to follow up and do some more of that, but, um, but we never got around to
3: it. So I thought it was quite neat.
0: Oh, it must be fascinating to work on a study organ- organism that, that's that smart. <laughs> yeah.
3: I, I had like a, a similar experience where I was in a, a rock pool on the mid-north coast, like a series, like a big rock platform, and there was this really big overhang where the, it was like all rocks and then a, kind of like a cave under it, and it was quite deep water and dark and you couldn't really see. And so I, I bent down to have a look under, and I thought it was a sea snake. So just this single long thing came out and it was moving exactly like a snake, uh, and I, I almost had a heart attack and fell back into the water. And it turns out it was an octopus. Just when it saw me coming, it put out just a single tentacle uh, outside the cave. I, I don't know if it was trying to mimic a sea snake because obviously you've got things like the mimic octopus, but it, it, it only put one arm out and then did a very convincing sea snake movement <laughs> that looked exactly like how it would swim through the water. And then once I splashed around a bit, it kind of came out, scuttled around a bit and then and then jetted off.
0: I have a mental image of this octopus just chuckling away.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can octopus chuckle? (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Hi, everyone. It's Nathan, the podcast producer. We're just letting you know that we had a dropout at this moment in the podcast and we're picking it up back here with Tracy talking about oyster shells.
0: Wow, that's that's interesting. I didn't know you could do that. So when you when you're looking inside an oyster shell, can you did you say you can see the those growth rings? Uh, I'm
2: not sure you can see it, but this is a this is a cross section of a, an oyster shell. You can't really see it. Sorry, of a clam shell, but in it, it's got micro micro lines, and you can see them under a dissect microscope. So for some for some subtitled clams, they're laid down annually. Um because of different gro- because they grow at different speeds in winter versus summer. So the density of the shell changes and the colour of that ch- colour changes. So you can count the colour lines, colour bands. Some mollusks and some bivalves lay them tidally, some lay them on lunar cycles. So um, unpicking what the lines mean can be can be quite can be quite complicated.
1: I think um It's quite interesting how quickly they can lay down that shell as well. During the experiments we have in the laboratory over a period of eight weeks, some of them put down, you know, somewhere between half a centimetre to a centimetre of frill, which is shell growth, a very thin layer of shell growth on on the outer edges of the the shell where it's expanding. Um, So it's, it's quite unbelievable to see just how quickly they can put that shell on.
0: Nice. Do you use that in experiments as a way to track what's happening with the, the oysters at all, whether they're doing well in an experiment or doing badly, how how much they're growing?
1: For me, definitely. Um, one of the most important things or the, the, the worst impacts of ocean acidification is that it impacts that shell development, their calcification. Uh, so we definitely look at the growth of the oyster um, Typically, in most of the oysters we've tested, growth shell growth is reduced when they're exposed to those conditions. So in terms of when we're looking at breeding for oysters that are more resilient or doing better under those climate change stresses, uh, one of the main things we look for is an oyster that's able to grow better. Um, And you can also, with Paul talking about looking at, you know, looking at the different growth stages, one thing that we can do with the oysters is you can... Label the oyster shell so um, you put it. Use a, a chemical to label the shell before you start an experiment, and then you can actually look specifically under a microscope um, at at the shell that has been laid down during the experiment. And um, in things such as ocean acidification experiments, you'll see that the shell usually has a nice structure, like a brick-like structure, when it's being laid down, but under uh, ocean acidification, those bricks don't be they aren't laid as well and they start becoming um more haphazard in their structure. Uh, so you can start to see how they are affected and how badly that shell shell calcification is affected.
0: In selecting those those oysters for replanting to recreate the the natural oyster beds, are you looking for ones that are going to be more resilient to what was projected in the future?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So at the moment we're going through, we have um, access to what's called family lines of oysters, of Sydney rock oysters. Um, And each of these family lines are genetically distinct from one another. So they can perform slightly different. So we go through, um, test a, a range of them. So in the last experiment, we had over 40 of these family lines that we exposed. And then we look at all of those different aspects of them, like their shell growth and then what's happening in their blood. And we pick the ones that are doing the best and use those ones to then transplant out into the field.
0: Do we know how um, heritable those traits remain under different pressures?
1: That's one of the, that's our next <laughs> question at the moment. So that yeah, that's one of the things we're looking at at the moment. So um, in our last experiment, something that we're really interested in is their metabolic rate under these stresses Uh, but until recently we had no understanding of whether that was a heritable trait so whether we could then use the breeding program to enhance that into the future so with that particular trait we've just got some evidence now to show that it is quite heritable so it is something that we should be able to use the breeding program on to further improve in the future and so we go through and look at all of the traits to, to try and determine yeah what the heritability is of each of them
0: um, guys, have you got any questions uh, related to those pressures and and doing experiments that influence the biology of of mollusks?
2: And one of the one of the great thing about things about mollusks, and I mean, I started off working on aquaculture and fisheries, but I moved much more into the ecology of of systems. And mollusks have been really, really, they're really cool to work with because when they're stressed, they partition energy really quickly. So they'll shift things from reproduction to growth in ways that are really easy easy to measure. So they're really good organisms um, to understand environmental change and, and, and they're often used as sentinels of, of, of environmental change in different ecosystems as well.
0: Can you explain for everyone what you mean by sentinels?
2: Um, you know, often, often with environmental stress and climate change, we only look we can only see a change in a system once it's changed so once once things have died and by that stage it's too late it's like well look the system's changed it's like well okay well what, what do we do now um so what what we're sort of eternally searching for are organisms that give us a a heads up that things are changing and, and one way to do that is to look for shifts in the life history like the growth of reproduction species before they die because things should change their life histories before they die. So they should go through this period of you know, I want to I say suffering before they die. So if we can pick up if we can pick up how organisms are changing, then the, as early indicators have changed, then we're in a better position to know when things are changing and, and to be able to do something about it. Um, so we're always looking for species that can that, that respond quickly and um, in constant ways to environmental change, and I guess that's what we mean by sentinels—the kind of early indicator species that might be indicative of change that we can, that we can use to help help interpret how environments are changing.
0: That must be really challenging with the huge diversity in the mollusks to to be able to identify the organisms then know what's normal for them and then also be able to know what which ones are are changing in subtle ways.
2: Yeah and I think you know as researchers you can you can look at the literature and there's been there's been 60 70 you know, it's probably 100 years work on searching for these types of species but no one's settled on one yet right um, And so well, come on <laughs> we, we've done a lot of work which, which ones we know that we know that bivalves accumulate toxins so they're indicators of toxins and they're used that way. You, you can and we use them in beaches and you know for fecal coliforms for heavy metals fish are used in the same way um we we're yet to take that kind of step to well, what about larger scale what about other issues like climate change and and where the where the it's we're relying more on um like changes in reproduction or growth rather than saying we can measure toxins in something as an indicator of something because that's easier to do because you're looking for a specific toxin in something but when you're looking for a life history change then you really need to know the organism and as you know mollusks are incredibly what we call plastic they change their shape in many different environments and it doesn't have to be due to human induced stress laws it could be growing in a different area because the rock pulls deeper or it's cooler you know so yep. what we call incorporating all that spatial variation and and how things grow is difficult and challenging.
0: In selecting those species and those life history traits, are there particular traits or characteristics that you would look for as these are the ones to target if we're going to, um, you know, select criteria for sentinel species?
2: Um, what do you think, Laura? I think it probably, if you knew if you knew a little bit about size, because size is an easy thing, it's got to be easy to do. It's got to be measurable. Um you, know, you don't if, if an area is stressed and you don't have too many left, you don't want to have to you don't to have to kill them to do things to them right so probably probably size is you know if you know in a certain area they should be a certain certain size and all of a sudden they're half the size then the, you know you've probably got a good good indication that something's changing
1: yeah I think I think that's exactly right and then I, I think if you're wanting to do things like, uh, especially understanding the risk of an environmental stressor, if, you, if you're thinking about a life history trait within an organism, many molar species appear to be the most vulnerable during their early life history stages. So what, what Paul was touching on earlier, that those stages where they're swimming around in the water column uh, before they settle out that appears for many species to be kind of the bottleneck or the the most sensitive stage in their development in terms of environmental stresses. So I think that's often a really good place to start when you're trying to understand the sensitivity of organisms to a particular stress.
0: Um, Thomas, um, any last comments on, as as we're all coming out of lockdown and people are starting to get back into, you know, the favourite places on shorelines and things, if, the students are out on beaches, what should they be looking out for for getting to know some of the diversity of different mollusks that they'll come across as shells on beaches or rocky platforms?
3: Uh, so I guess it depends kind of what your favorite flavor of mollusks is, whether it's <laughs> it's bivalves or gastropods. So if you're if you're more bivalve minded and you're interested in, in cockles and mussels and clams, then the best way to get those while beachcombing is on these open ocean beaches because a lot of these bivalves live buried in the sand uh, offshore. Um, and so I usually find that when I go on open ocean beaches, the bivalves tend to be the, the most common and the biggest deposits. Uh, not I find, out, at least around Sydney, that they don't tend to be as many species. But in terms of abundance, there are certainly more. Uh, whereas if you're looking for gastropods, then certainly all the rock pools and the rock platforms are fantastic uh, for both herbivorous and carnivorous little gastropods. Uh, and so, as I mentioned earlier, if, if you literally just go to somewhere like um, the southern end of Maroubra Beach actually is pretty good, uh, or Long Reef, uh, or the northern end of Mona Vale Beach, uh, they've all got uh, quite nice rock platforms and rock pools. Uh, and you just go along the strand line where there are some big shell deposits and you just get down on your hands and knees in the sand and, and you spend an hour or two and, and you'll find several hundred uh, species of seashell. Um, and so that's you. You might have a sore back uh, and knees afterwards, but I, I always find it worth it.
2: But that's the same when you're on rocky shores or sandy beaches. It's take your time. Don't don't walk around. Sit down in a pool and 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 search because there'll be a lot more than than what you think. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's been a really common theme in a lot of these discussions: is is how to get your eye in and start to look at nature from that perspective and what to observe. So, any other any tips you have for how people can do that for looking at mollusks, Paul?
2: Part of it is just is just going out repeatedly and getting a mental picture for things. So you know you'll go out, you'll find a couple of things, and then you'll always see them, and then you built kind of you you keep you keep building on it. And you'll see more than a couple of things, you'll see lots of things and you'll get a mental picture of things and all of a sudden, you know, the little things that like like shades or darker things you will just resolve themselves, always resolve themselves into, into into animals. So it's really just about spending time out there, taking your time. But it's also, um, you don't need to dive to see most of the biodiversity in the oceans. You know, a good snorkel around Sydney and you'll see most of what you need to see. Just take your time, get in there, you know, pull the seaweed apart, you know, um, just just take, make the effort to, to really slow down and, and try and find things and you'll and, and, and you get there.
0: Here's a, a question about the restoration of oyster reefs, and I know it's, you don't want to get too close up to, to oyster reefs in terms of walking, but for snorkelling around them, is there is that something that would be interesting to do, some of these natural reefs, to see the biodiversity? Bit of an out there question.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is you have to get out to the middle of the estuaries to do that. So it's not yeah. the easiest. They're not the easiest places to get to. So the the, the remnant reefs that are around tend to be in out of the way places that people don't go to yeah. anyway. Um, I mean, you you get habitat forming species, you know, mussels and and boy you know, not not mollusks, or, um, but on, on the rocky shores and lots of other places where you'll see you just kelp, kelp beds with lots of fish around. Um, you'll see some of the things and um.
0: up here around Brisbane, around Brisbane Water, which is a massive um, estuarine area north of Sydney. We see lots of beds of oysters um, along the shoreline, and yeah, I've never actually I've never thought of just stopping and looking at what's living in amongst those those big you know kind of beds of oysters which are you know we paddle past them regularly
2: yeah there's probably three or four key mollusks gastropods that are in there lots of crabs um yeah. a lot of those oysters are associated with mangrove new metaphors um so there's really interesting interactions going on between mangroves and oysters all these kind of complex habitats all sort of working together and well, that's one of the challenges for us in ecology. We tend to think of working in our own little habitats. Someone works on mangroves, someone works on oysters, someone works on mussels. But you go to things like estuaries, and they're actually they're all connected. So the things that are oysters are using the mangroves, and things in the mangroves are using the oysters. And you know, trying to build a picture of our ecosystems that integrates all these things is is a way forward, but very you know, very challenging way to do ecology.
0: Uh, Laura, any last comments for the students um, with recommendations for understanding oysters, or, or what they should take away from from this week?
1: Um, no, I just think I mean I just think reiter- reiterating what Paul and Thomas were saying. I think you know, away from oysters, most in general. Um, I mean, one of my favourite things to do is is go with the family and, and look at rock pools, and could spend hours hours doing that. Um, I think. One of the big differences for me when I started, I've always liked to do that. One of the big differences for me when I started this work was, you know, I'll see oysters now when, looking, when I'm on a rock platform and see them there and they just mean so much more now. You know, they're not just something that's sitting there on a rock. I, I think how good it is that they're there and, and the importance that they're, you know, they're providing to, to that habitat there. So I think just becoming more aware when you're seeing these organisms, um, what they do, and like Paul was saying, how they're all you know interacting together, um, I think that that's just it's really good to kind of see mollusks in that light when you when you're visiting yeah the marine and the marine habitat.
0: Fantastic. Can
1: I just Can I
3: just jump in with one yeah, last thing? Yeah. So as we're starting to get towards summer as well, one thing that's always really cool to look out for on the beaches is the blue fleet. Uh, so this is this really cool assemblage of blue and purple organisms uh, including mollusks which all kind of live on the surface of the ocean uh, and they all have interactions with each other a lot of them are predators and the others are prey so these are things like uh, blue bottles uh, by the wind sailors blue buttons all these cnidarians that are floating on the surface but then you've also got the the sea slugs that are in the family glaucidae so glaucus and Glaucilla. Um so they're they're You'll, you'll probably have seen photos of them on Instagram or social media. They're often called sea lizards or um, sea dragons, uh, even though that's also a fish. Um, and they actually feed on the blue bottles uh, and the other cnidarians and then accumulate their toxins. And then you've also got the violet, uh, the violet sea snails, uh, which are the janthinas. They're this absolutely vivid purple. And they float along uh, upside down on the surface of the water as well. And they're also preying on... Uh, the blue bottles and things like that. And you get four or five species of those sea snails washing up. And so often once you see one of those things wash up, you'll see all of them wash up on the beach. Uh, So they're a really cool thing to look out for as we head into the summer months is all these amazing purple and blue organisms washed up onto the beach.
0: Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.